Welcome back. This is episode number 14, 13. Okay, let's try again. Welcome to Fits and Starts. This is episode Hello, number Fits and Starts. 13 of Fits and Starts. And uh, we have Matt Stauffer on the program today, who is Daniel Coburn's boss. It's my boss. He's a nice man, too. Uh, yeah. Nice man. But yeah, Matt is my boss. Matt uh, is one of the two owners of Titan, which is the company I work for. It is a web development consultancy we do a lot of laravel work but we do other things as well matt is a programmer he's the cto of the company um and uh he you know he wrote a big book about uh laravel called laravel up and running which is published by o'reilly he literally wrote the book on laravel he did it's actually on our website we have a we have a page that says we literally wrote the book on it (laughs) (laughs) uh so if you want to see his book it's at laravelupandrunning.com um, you can follow him on Twitter at Stauffer Matt. That, that's uh, S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R Matt. Um, and if you want any uh, web development work done, check out uh, Titan.co. Titan. And that's Titan like Titan your belt or Titan a screw. T-I-G-H-T-E-N. dot C-O. Oh, and also if you happen to be um, someone who works for a nonprofit and has to raise support or raise your own salary... Uh, Matt also created a software as a service product called Karani for that. So I know there's a bunch of people who listen to this who uh, are into that type of stuff, including my parents. Hi, mom. Yeah, that's a that's a that is a, a weirdly specific thing that probably a disproportionate number of fits and starts listeners are into. Um, okay, let's get to it. the transition from um doing something that was presumably like not a job that was using your uh development you know skills or uh, talents to then deciding okay wait i I have a thing here i'm gonna run and be a full-time developer and i'm gonna be uh i'm gonna you know start building things on my own the road you eventually went down was going to sort of this like agency model right with the with titan um and it, it kind of occurred to me as like there's the one model of like i'm gonna go build one product and then i'm gonna go need to raise some funding and i'm gonna need to hire a whole team around me of people who have a very different skill set so they can go figure out how to market and sell this thing and i'm gonna build a company that sells a product versus going down the agency model where you're working for clients who are uh making a bunch of different kinds of demands on you and then you kind of have a group of, of developers who are building different things for different people it occurred to me that actually the second model, the one that you're actually currently doing, is probably more fertile ground for coming up with clever and smart software ideas than the first is, where you're just working on one thing and it's sort of like ride or die. You've got this. You've got this one thing that you're hammering on. Um, right. But I'm curious, like how? How? Uh, number one, I'm curious uh, what led you to go down that. What led you to choose that road? And number two, I'm also curious, like how often it does happen that new products get spun out of agencies like Titan. Yeah. Um, that's a fantastic question. And I, I could retroactively justify retroactively justify my, um, motivations, but, uh, I won't do that. I'll instead tell you what really happened. But uh, I guess before I tell you what really happened, I, I, I'm glad I went the route I did. Um, I think that the, um, 
I, I, people look to ThoughtBot as an example, but they also look to less accounting as an example, and they also look to Basecamp slash 37 Signals as examples. And each of those have gone different routes. So just a quick intro there to, to say why I want to be where I am. Um, ThoughtBot is a consultancy that spun out products. And I'm one of my really close friends is kind of their lead of product. And so I kind of get a little bit of an inside look at those things. And I'm not going to you know share anything super secret or anything like that. But um, it's always a balance for people who do that. I know a couple of agencies who've done that between how many of your resources, internal resources go to basically doing quote unquote free work for your products. Um, and every group that ever does that, including ThoughtBot, has to figure out this balance of um, at what point are they sustainable, self-sustainable? And it, it takes a lot longer to get to that point than you think. So really what it is, is the consultancy is essentially like a venture capital firm for some startups that all happen to have the same name. Um, so that's that's one interesting piece of it. But also, so, you know, 37 Signals went the way of Basecamp, and I don't want Titan to go that way. Um, people have been asking me for a long time, like, hey, Karani makes enough money to support you full time. Why don't you just go do that? And it has for a long time. Karani's been enough money where I could just quit Titan and just go run Karani and be, you know, an entrepreneur, whatever, that lifestyle. I don't want that lifestyle. For, for one reason, there's a, there's a lot of reasons I don't want it. But second of all, I like being on a team. I like the diversity of, you know, challenges that I have. I don't want to be stuck in one code base forever. I don't want to be stuck in one market forever. Um, so there's that. Less Accounting had a consultant. He spun out a product and eventually sold the product and went back to a consultant because they were bored. You know, they were just like, we want to do something mm-hmm. different. So there's all mm-hmm. these different examples to look at. I think that our long-term, ours is the best but I've come to that conclusion after having done it, not like I was really smart up front and I knew that. So the short, hopefully short story of it is um, I had done some consulting in the past. I did some front end stuff, you know, back in the early 2000s when I was in high school and college. And I just did a lot of like kind of freelance stuff. And I mean, back then there was no, you know, massive Silicon Valley web startup scene because, the, you know, I was in high school, I graduated high school in 2003. So yeah, there's the dot-com bubble, but that wasn't attracting people like me at that point. I was a, you know, kid setting up a bulletin board service and learning how to make HTML and CSS. Um, and that today, that kid is also, you know, hearing about Silicon Valley. Back then, that was not the same thing. It was not, there's not a big overlap then. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, mm-hmm. geeks building our own personal websites. So the, the, the people, like me coming out of that time period we were more connected to what you'd now call bootstrapped not venture capital now that's again that's different today but the back then all the people who are bootstrappers came out of the same type of community that I came that I came out of so even though I didn't know those terms that was very much a natural kind of progression for me so graduated college um in the middle of college, I decided to leave design and instead go into English and teaching. And then I worked for a nonprofit for five years. And I occasionally did some programming on the side. And really, the, the big shift was um, I kind of felt like it was starting to be time to move away from the nonprofit. My wife wanted to go back to school. We moved to Chicago for her to go to grad school. Um, the amount of money I was going to get paid by my nonprofit dropped from you know near poverty levels to below poverty levels. And I said, you know what? You're going to go to private grad school. I want to pay for the bills. Why don't I go do the thing I know how to do that makes money? I'm in a program. So I just started looking for freelance work because that's the world I knew. So I wasn't coming at this being like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a founder. I was like, mm. I'm going to pay the bills for my family while my wife pursues her dreams. Like, that's mm. what it was for me. Now, yeah, mm. I liked it, but I was not, this, this is not this hugely idealistic thing. And I happened to meet a guy in the same co-working space who needed a programmer. And he gave me the freedom to just go, like, become a better programmer for two months before we started the project. So, like, that was that was my whole flow. And so, so it was founded on serving clients. It was founded on just making money to take care of my family. And I did start Karani at that point, but I started Karani in part because I needed it in part because I couldn't get enough work. And so I was like, well, I'm at the office. I only have 10 hours of work this week. I might as well do something. 
let's go learn something. I'll, uh, you know, I'll take this kind of idea that I've been throwing around and combine it with learning some programming and build this kind of useful thing, whatever, you know? So, so again, I, I wasn't like, Hey, I'm an entrepreneur type. That's going to do this. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, I guess this is what's in front of me. That's super interesting to me. The, um, the difference of mindset when you're starting out that, um, there, it sounds like the polar opposite of what Daniel and I called the kind of visionary bro culture where you have people who have no idea how to build things who are uh, kind of all ideas and kind of think of themselves as founders rather than entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So you've got this idea of the, like the entrepreneur, this person who is actually going to be a founder. And I think from the outside, it looks like programmers equal entrepreneurs or that like people interested in investments and venture capital equal entrepreneurs or people in Silicon Valley equal entrepreneurs. The reality that I've seen just from the companies we've invested in and the companies we haven't invested in is that the profile of like a successful founder and a successful entrepreneur is pretty darn specific. And it's less than 1% of normal people because they're not normal people. They're like hard driving people who have an obsession with an idea and are very, very smart and are really good at bringing other smart people around them and are not deterred by almost anything. And that is just like not a description of normal people. And I'm starting, I'm grappling with that a lot right now, just because I'm thinking about that for myself, because I think, uh, you know, ever since the show started and long before I've wondered if eventually I would start my own company and I'm starting to look around and just realizing it's, it's not as simple as just saying, I'm going to go start my own company. There really is a particular type of strange person who is good at starting a company and if that's not me that's totally okay um i don't know i've just been thinking about that a lot lately yeah i think people um often don't they they underestimate the the practical it's like a this pizza parlor i heard about it or a movie theater pizza parlor was a thing (laughs) on the show it's like that people don't understand the day-to-day work of starting a company let alone you know a tech consultancy or tech you know um startup or whatever um and i think there's a lot of idealized kind of conceptions of what that's going to look like um and so people imagine the freedom and the excitement and the um you know just like this control and um, yeah I have control and I get to say like this you know this thing's gonna happen this thing's not gonna happen this person's gonna get hired even though they might not have gotten hired somewhere else or get an interview or a sponsorship or a scholarship you know there's or this person is gonna be able to take off when they might not another job or we're not gonna deal with that kind of thing from clients and we'll fire a client if they try to treat my developers that way I have a lot of culture making power that I really appreciate I have a lot of influence I'm aware of it and I try to use it well and I wouldn't if I weren't the owner so there's a lot of really great things that come from it and I also get to say, you know what, we're going to take this day off because I own the company. I love that phrase. I own the company. And so I'm going to do what I want, you know, so like, and give everybody the day off. Like those things are good. They're great. I also am up until, you know, midnight, many nights. And when we screw the pooch and totally under deliver, I'm the one who spends, you know, three months working 90 hour work weeks to make up for it. Cause it's my company. I have those responsibilities. And I'm also the one who, um, you know, has to hand smooth things over in bureaucratic ways or answer questions about taxes. Or I mean, I don't want to go deep into it, but like the, the things that a founder does, the thing that someone who owns a company does are very, very outside of the range of what most people are imagining when they say I want to start a company. And I, I do love what you said about like founders are weird. Um, there is one distinction there, which is that I think that um, 
venture-backed Silicon Valley style founders is more of a niche group than just people who can start and or run a company. Yeah. Um, so like if you were, if you were to survey the type of people that it would be wise for you to invest in, um, and the type of people who are successful bootstrap founders of a, you know, $200,000 business, there would be um, a lot of overlap, but there'd be a lot of not overlap as well. So I think yeah, there's some, some true. things worth considering there. And I think that like the, the, the level of intensity and not normalness that's required from founders in the venture capital space is much greater than in the bootstrap space. And I mean, you, you got to be able to push through and deal with hard things. And there's a lot less glamour than people think, but in the bootstrap world, it's a lot more like, well, if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. You know, you, you, you work slowly, it's slow growth. It's a lot more kind of, um, natural and organic usually in bootstrap um not that that's better but it is definitely less like intense whereas mm -hmm. with vc mm -hmm. world it's kind of like go hard 120 hours a week you know all that kind of stuff like that requires a greater level of insanity than normal founding yep. yeah and that's something i've thought about a lot too like i often when i hear you know you, there's a lot of places where you can hear these sort of silicon valley founder stories you know and whether that's like you know on a podcast where they get interviewed or you know, a TechCrunch interview or write-up or whatever, when you hear from these people, they sound insane. Like, everything that they mm -hmm. do sounds like an unhealthy decision that they made, you know, because of some sort of deep-seated mania, right? <laughs> um, and it's crazy. And it's like, how, wait, you did what now? Like, I, I was listening, oh, there was a How I Built This interview with the guys who did Airbnb, Right. Oh yeah. They that was had, a good one. Gosh, yes. They had a baseball card binder full of credit cards that they yep. they you know they put out like forty thousand dollars on personal credit cards to fund the company, which they then made back by making election themed cereal and selling it <laughs> yeah. for forty dollars a box. Like that's how Airbnb <laughs> happened. It's the product of Mad Men. Like yeah. no one sane was involved in that process. Like it's in it's insane, but they did it in in, in a way that like. I don't know if I am like I don't know if I'm ever going to be a successful like venture capital Silicon Valley go 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 guy, mm -hmm. right? I, like I don't think that I can I can hit those metrics, right? <laughs> but uh, but like I've also like you know you hear from some sort of you know more bootstrap founders, and that's where I hear more of the stuff that really appeals to me, like the you know I built a business to have a certain life, right? Like yeah. the lifestyle business. We've all we've talked a lot on here about like whether lifestyle business is a pejorative term or whatever. But mm -hmm. the lifestyle business to me, you know, comports really nicely with my idea of like what I want. You know, what I want is to structure the life that allows me to sort of do the things with other people that I want to do. Right. And that means mm -hmm. sometimes being available at three in the afternoon to, you know, to be there for someone. And that also means like being able to you know stay up until one in the morning sometimes because that's you know that's how that has to happen but like those i want to structure a life that sort of allows me to to live the life with sort of the actual human society around me that i want to live yeah um and so that's why like the bootstrap thing appeals much more to me because it's like it's it's a much more one-to-one -one correlation of like where your dollars come from right mm -hmm. versus yep. sort of the venture capital thing where it's like i'm just gonna burn out and hope that someone drops hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, I, I think about the lifestyle thing a lot what would it actually look like for me to start a new business and 
some of the first things that come to mind are like, well, I'd probably like sell a lot of like stuff I don't need. And I'd probably cut a lot of things out of my life. Those are the first two things that come to mind are like, I would probably stop making music immediately. I would probably stop working on the podcast. I can't take an hour to sit there and listen to the new Kendrick Lamar album to like really dive in and then like write an essay for myself just because I'm trying to sort through what it is he just taught me. Uh, because like, I just really enjoy doing those things. I realize uh, I think I really, really place a very high value on those parts of my life. And I, I realize that I don't think I want to go pursue a job that would mean that I would probably need to cut those things out. I got, I got a, I, my TLDR, um, uh, is something I've been wanting to say to y'all as I've been listening to your podcast for a while, um, which is, um, owning a company, starting a thing, being a founder, um, is very romantic and go, go down that road, um, as far as you want, as far as you're comfortable, but don't let yourself get stuck on that idea. And this is to you and to your listeners. Don't let you get stuck on the second idea of the founder, because some of the most influential people, some of the most creative people, um, some of the most fulfilled people, um, are able to not worry about, um, tax liabilities and, uh, business development, um, and can instead focus on just doing the thing they want to do. So figure out what the thing is that like you want to do and you love doing, and don't let a title of whether you work for someone or don't work for someone, don't let those things get in the way of it. Like, like if, if you want to, you know, handle HR issues and spend six weeks on hiring people and, uh, you know, all that kind of, and deal with the taxes in every new state where you hire somebody or, or, or hire people to do those things. Like if you want to deal with that stuff and, and that is either worth the other values you get from owning a company of self-determination, or that's what kind of gets your whatever cool go do it go love it go whatever but like i think that we should not be swept away in thinking that there's this particular way we're going to be fulfilled so i would say like focus less on what somebody else has told you success is going to look like like what i was saying with titan like don't worry about what someone else tells you success is success is finding the thing that you want the most of the world and like making it happen that that's that's success and who cares in what context that happens it could be as a sanitation worker because then your brain is free to think about your poetry all the time or whatever you know who cares what it is figure that out and the other thing is like in all things like care for other people like if you care for other people your life will be better your life will be fulfilled you'll see more success and your your mark on the world will be better and i know that i'm like hyper preachy or whatever but like i think that those two things are like more like every, everything else can kind of flow from there i guess but this is a little this is a little spooky because this is a voice I only hear on my podcast. So <laughs> same here. Been, You're uh, a real boy. I've been, yeah, I know. I gotta cool it with the gain. Hello, 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 hello. Ooh, that's up, not down. Are you in Florida? You like ooh? This is some ASMR stuff. You like this cold brew moving around the mic? Assistant to the venture capitalist. I'm a, assistant to the regional manager. And we... <laughs> All right, I'm gonna start recording now. <laughs> like those are fits and starts this is something this is 16 minutes of uh technical considerations from two programmers and Mm, that's problematic there's this mismatch between what we think of as like useful traits and what would be considered maybe like objectively good traits for for employees for entrepreneurs for different people uh you know we we really want everyone to be working their butts off and we really want everyone to be super productive but also you know not to their own detriment if if we found out that one of our uh, one of our founders had like a cocaine addiction we would be very upset about that because we'd say oh no i hope 
I, you know, I, I don't want him to have this unhealthy addiction. And also that's like coming at the detriment of our investment. But if we found out that he was a, you know, uh, an undiagnosed workaholic, Mm -hmm. then we'd be saying, oh no, that's really unhealthy, but also that benefits the the fund. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there's that weird, interesting mismatch where I've realized that I have, um, some traits like an ego and a sense of like completion and an attention to detail on certain projects that are very, very useful for the company that I'm in and the market that we're in really appreciates those traits, but that those are not necessarily good things that make me uh, a better person or a more healthy person. They're just things that are really, really useful in this market economy right now. Um, and it's really difficult, seems like, to parse those things out as an employer. I'm looking at it from the perspective of I'm an employee who has these things that are useful. But Matt, I, I'm interested to hear you talk about that a little bit because you have experienced that from the employee side, but now you are employing people at an organization that I know takes you know, wellness and uh, kind of mental uh, happiness uh, pretty seriously. I've, I've nearly fired people out of my desire for them to be in the right place. Hmm. Losing employees, especially really good employees, is very tough because you have to now go through the whole hiring process again. And not only do you have to go through the time of the hiring process, but you've got to find somebody as good as that original person, which is tough. So uh, I, I don't care. If, if Titan succeeds at the expense of my employees' health, then Titan has failed. Um, so I, and I'm not being altruistic. Maybe it's altruistic. Like, I'm not being, you know, like, oh, I want people to think. I don't care. Like, you're not, you're not like, posturing. Right. I'm not posturing because like, I don't, I don't care what you think about me, but like if I I often tell my employees, like there's certain people where I kind of tell you, um, you know, Hey, you gotta, you gotta push a little harder here. I'm not just nice all the time. Like I can tell someone like, you know what? Like I, I know as a programmer, I know what an acceptable amount of kind of like work done during this time period was and you didn't meet it. You need to step it up. That's the thing I'm perfectly comfortable saying. I'm also very perfectly comfortable saying, I know that you have a little bit of a tendency of workaholic and I know that this project is really stressful. I need you to look me in the eyes right now. And I'm, I don't mean to be pandering or something like that, but I actually often, honestly say this, like it is going to be very tempting for you to work along hours this week to get this thing done. You need to know that all I want you to do is work the hours you have on your plate, use them as best as you can, and then leave satisfied at the end of the day. That's all I want from you right now. And, and I see, you know, someone go, you know, big breath and go, okay, you know, I'm going to do that because we need those correctives. We need, there's all sorts of pressures that come from our clients that come from our, you know, our drive to be the best, to come from the desire to satisfy your employers and make them happy, whatever. And so sometimes, um, something that we might know to be like true-ish, right? Like don't burn yourself out or whatever. Um, you need to be heard, to be explicitly true from the person who's kind of, you know, I don't want to like inflate my own importance, but like I'm the one who signs the paychecks. I'm the one who decides if we keep working here or not. So I have more of an ability than anybody else to tell someone you need to not overwork. You need to take it easy. You need to go home. You need to not, and whatever. And so that's what, when I said my job is basically like, like I used to, my, my last job before this was as a campus pastor, you know, pastoral work, you know, that's, that's what I did. And that's mm-hmm. still what I'm doing now. Um, but it's not religious, but it's still caring for people and trying to identify what is going to help them do well and be happy. Um, so yeah, it's, for me, it's not a conflict. It's not a difficult one. It's just whatever is going to be best for them. And of course, not to the detriment of my clients or my company, but like whatever's going to be best for them is going to be the best thing. And I, and I, I believe that very pragmatically as well. I mean, if you talk about the workaholic, the workaholic gets divorced. The workaholic burns out and develops a cocaine addiction. The workaholic becomes an alcoholic. The workaholic 
gets overweight and unhealthy. The workaholic, um, you know, puts in lots of hours that aren't actually good hours because their brain burns out after eight hours and they keep working to 12. Um, so the workaholic does not do the type of work or does not, is not the long-term employee that I want anyway. And I'm, I'm doing them a favor and me a favor and my clients a favor by constraining that in. And same thing, people coming in when they're sick because they're trying to, they have this misguided sense of, you know, obligation. I'm like, no, you do crappy work when you're sick and then I'm billing you out an hourly rate that's not in line with the amount of work, you're, the, the value you're providing to my, my customers. Get out of here, come back when you're better, you know? So yes, altruistically, I want you to just heal. Pragmatically, I don't want to deliver crappy work to my clients. Cool, this is easy for everyone. Get out of here. I'll see you tomorrow. Is that how you end every workday? You, you, you uh, yell at everyone on Slack, get out of here, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> we are all in different time zones, so I don't, I don't have that affordance, but I would if I could. You are definitely the first boss I've had who has like specifically told me, like, don't complete these tasks, go away. You know, and like, it's a nice thing to be told. Like it, it really, it really like puts an end to your week. Um, it's, it's a nice thing. And there's also been times where it's like, finish this. Right. Like, just get it done. Get yeah. it done within the hours, but get it done. <laughs> Literally, one of my interview questions, I'm, I'm in an interview process right now, is how do you identify when you're thrashing and how do you get out of it? Because I want to see that, like, when I fight hard to get you a 40-hour work week, um, that you're going to use those 40 hours in a way that lines up with the amount of money I'm charging my clients, basically. Yeah, I mean, the best the best responses I heard from everybody about um, how they handle identify and, and handle thrashing almost always have to do with... Um, forest for the trees you're you're stuck in the middle of the thing and you don't have the perspective you need and you're coming at it from the wrong angle for programmers it's almost always um, you have gotten in your head that it needs to be solved a certain way and when that way is not working out you're just kind of hitting that hit that way with a hammer over and over again trying to get it to what you want and all you got to do is step away take a you know take a run or whatever else and ends up being a power nap and you come back at it and you see that like if you just shift your perspective by five degrees or something like that, there's this really simple, really easy solution that does the, the core of what you needed, but not the way you're expecting. And you needed to back out of the way you were working on in order to do it. And I know it's not exactly the same for non-programmers, but there's definitely a lot of like just step back, get perspective, make a list or whatever else it ends up being for you. And I'm, I'm actually a list guy as well, because for me, I get overwhelmed in life, not just in work, when... I have a lot of things weighing on me and they're not structured. And so I've got to do a little getting things done and get them all out of my brain because when they're sitting on a list in front of you, they seem, you know, approachable, but when they're all just jumbling around in your brain, it's just overwhelming. And so once you get a list, you can, you can identify the list, you can prioritize the list. You can look at each individual piece in list and figure out how to do that sim- more simply and accomplish the same goal. And then also you can check them off and see that list get shorter, shorter, shorter over time. Yep. There's something, it's, it's also nice. I think with lists, um, if I can just dump everything out, look through everything that I'm working on and just get everything out there and put 25 things on my, on my list, I'll realize that like 15 of them actually don't need to be done today. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Uh, and then I'll realize that five of the remaining ones will take five minutes or less, you know? And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I actually just have have five things. things to do. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the term phase two is one of the most important parts of my job. And the term phase two, which Daniel's very familiar mm-hmm. with, is we, you, you get the client to talk about all the things they want. You have the initial call with them where you tell them, hey, we're agile, which means we're not promising your, your whole feature set's going to be done. We're just promising you that we're going to work on it for eight weeks and we're going to get the most important stuff done first. And that's it. And we're going to, you know, that's, that's always a, a tough sell. But phase two really just <laughs> means get everything in Trello. 
organize them by priority and start moving things off the bottom of the list into another list, which is the, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll get to it later kind of list. That's really, it's really, and we call it phase two for the clients. And all that means for them is it's going to get done. It is important, but we need to identify a release. And can you say that this thing, which of course is very vital and very important to you is not as vital as the other things. And it's okay to release without it. And, and that's it. And so they call it a phase two. And then, you yeah, just... and 90% of the time, they don't end up wanting any of the things that are on that list. Yep. Because by the time you get to phase two, they, they actually understand the way the thing works 100% differently. And you realize that those were useless. Mm-hmm. And the good thing is you've already begun the identification that they're useless by putting them at the way bottom of a big list. Um, but it's just a, you know, a way to have that without telling them, hey, you have useless things. Like, no, you don't. You have phase two things. My problem is uh, that I get addicted to the feeling of checking off boxes, and um, I get I, I, I find it so unbelievably gratifying to check off a box that when I have a big list like that and I go into panic mode, I start mm-hmm. looking at low-priority things that I know I can do in five minutes or ten minutes that'll be like something that I really know how to accomplish and know how to do well, and mm-hmm. I'll just start mowing through those things because i find it so gratifying to check the box and then <laughs> well it's it's a little bit of the you know the debt snowball the dave ramsey thing it's a it's a little bit like that are you guys familiar with that or no uh, i, I know about dave ramsey about i don't know about uh his snowball though so the debt snowball basically says if you have a whole bunch of debt then the smartest thing to do would be to che- to pay off your debt that has the highest interest rate first right because right. it's the highest interest rate um but what he says is it you should actually pay off your debt according to the smallest first. And so let's say you've got, you know, five loans that you're paying off and it's super overwhelming. You're paying 50 bucks a month on all of them. Uh, Well, pay the the minimum on all of them except for the smallest one. And then you pay off that smallest one as fast as you can. um, And all of a sudden you have one less that you're paying towards and now you're kind of rolling on to the next smallest one. And and so the snowball idea is basically like that the money that from each one that gets paid off now gets rolled into the other ones and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the amount you're paying off to those gets bigger and bigger. And so it's, it's, I, I didn't do a great job of describing it, but it's essentially around like what matters less is getting the exact right way to approach it according to, well, well, actually you should do this. And in more, it's about your brain, how your brain approaches these things. And so maybe your thing of like checking off the smallest thing is actually like a defense mechanism up against about uh, that gets you away from dealing with hard problems. But, but one of the other great ways to avoid thrashing is to just get started. And the best way to get started is by identifying a small thing. Cause once you check off that small box, your brain is in the space and you're understanding it. And you look at that medium sized thing that might've seemed overwhelming before but you just check something off you're already in that space you're already thinking about this client you're already there and so that medium one is a little more approachable this time so i for me i love low-hanging fruit i think it gets your brain started like i heard a lot of writers say at the end of the day don't finish the paragraph you're on or don't finish the sentence you're on like leave it trailing so the next morning when you pick it up it's a very obvious next you know next words or next sentences and so the first thing you do in the day is just start writing and by the time you hit the time where you have to be creative and you're not just finishing the previous day's work you're already your fingers are already moving and your brain's already in that space so i think there's something to be said for that yep yeah and dan actually said this to me uh when we were talking recently where he he suggested you know try getting an easy win first thing in the morning and that was like one of the best things that someone has said to me this year because it was like it's something that I've done. And whether that's just like, oh, I need to make sure that this text turns gray when it's disabled. Like that was my easy win this morning was like, mm-hmm. make sure a piece of text turns gray when it's disabled. But I like I put it on my little list in Fragile. Right. And I was like, OK, make sure the text turns gray when it's disabled. And I worked on it for 11 minutes, you know, and it was done. <laughs> and uh, then I was like, OK, 
today is a day. Like I can live this day. Isn't it kind of funny how you have, uh, it feels like you have a wild animal inside of you that you're trying to coax along. It's like, you're taking this like almost like paternal pandering, uh, approach to like tricking your brain into being okay with working and trying to like coax yourself into the right space. It's so funny. It's like, there's like two different selves in there and the Mm -hmm. one is the parent and one is like this, uh, sort of irrational child that you're trying to, uh, set up, set up a structure where they can thrive. Yeah. I, I feel like that all the time. I feel like so much of our lives is the balance between our like uh, hyper and you, you guys are philosophy type people, so you'll know this the words for this way better than I do. But uh, so much of our lives is a balance between like the aware self, like the mental self, and then like the internal, whether it's the animal or whatever, this internal self. And my buddy Ben Orenstein um, just sent me a book about, and he talked about it on his podcast, which is Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots. Um, I know that one. I don't know the. Yeah, I don't know the episode number, but they were talking about this this book where it's the this tennis book about a guy who's been teaching tennis for ages, and he basically identifies that like the more you tell people in their brain like how to do the tennis moves, the more they struggle. And what he found was every single time he's telling them to do it, they would be just like basically yelling at themselves for not doing the thing that their brain understood. Their brain understood mm. the instructions, and then they would try to do it, and they wouldn't do it. And then they would hear he would hear them like being like, "You're so why are you, you know, you're so stupid" or whatever. And he, he he's like, it, "It was as if I was watching two people yelling at each other." And he he totally changed his teaching. It sounds super simple. Yeah, but that sounds like some changed. like C.S. Lewis stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he, and, but he, and what he ended up doing is basically the simple, the simple answer is don't teach him by telling him, teach him by showing, you know, like, okay, cool. That's, I mean, everybody knows that that's, that's a better thing. It makes sense. But there's something deep there about like, there's, there's, you know, there's multiple pieces of us. And a lot of it is really kind of getting the aware mental state to get like the internal self to do what we want. And you said it's about like motivating an animal. I mean, how many times have you been stuck trying to get the motivation to do the thing you know you should do? Like mm. it's, it's a lot of our day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you want to laugh, but you also don't want to laugh. Now we can hear you as as though you were shouting up to us through like a small PVC pipe from a mine, <laughs> which is a great way to record a podcast. I've never seen a full episode of Seinfeld in my life. Good heavens! I also don't own. Wow! I don't own any New Balance, um, so I'm pretty sure my white <laughs> card has been officially revoked. It's problematic. Yeah, I about that. You were Nikes? Uh, you know what I mean? Like a, it's kind of like if you got wide feet and then you buy shoes that fit, then you th- you got to buy them wider and then you look like clown shoes. I don't know. Maybe this is just a me thing. But, yeah. No, I'm a yeah. wide-footed there man. I understand the struggle. Yeah, okay. I am I'm dimensionally awkward in a lot of ways. This is just something I've like observed watching you, and I don't think I've actually ever talked to you about, but like you oh have boy, this, this is gonna get good you have like i know wow yeah, yeah, yeah i observe um you have an interesting set of opinions that i don't feel like i've ever actually fully extracted from your head about <laughs> like civility and behaving correctly on the internet right uh-huh. and you uh and one of the things that like I see you like actively trying to do things sometimes and I having listened to five minute geek show a million times, the one about uh, giving credit where credits due is a great example, mm-hmm. right? Or there's lots of good examples on there. Just use your real name, you know, all these things, <laughs> right? You're someone who clearly like has been successful at like communicating, you know, who you are and what you do to a fairly big audience on the internet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also sort of have these these opinions about like 
the I don't know if you want to say the right way, but like the the cordial way to be mm-hmm. on the internet, right? And you I've mm-hmm. seen you like take umbrage with people who are being right? I've seen you <laughs> yeah. like really really respect like when people were sort of riding in the bike lane basically of Twitter. You know, to to go mindfully into that space, into the internet and into being like any sort of a public figure on the internet, like it takes an incredible amount of like self-analysis to not just get consumed by growth. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like how do you how do you think about that? How do you handle that? Um thank you for all the compliments you paid me in the way you described me. Um I think the the everything is all about integrity. Um always. It's about in, well, not okay. That's too reductionist. Integrity, um empathy, kindness, um caring for other people like all those things undergird every aspect of how i approach everything and especially this so um yeah i i I love the fact that a lot of people listen to me i love the fact that um, my reputation within our community affords me the ability to speak at conferences um to get signed to o'reilly to um you know to get great work for our company that a lot of that comes from my reputation and i'm not i'm not i don't not appreciate that um that said um the, the reputation is not the goal. Um, and I, I struggle ridiculously with pride. I'm this kind of like, you know, people pleasing, you know, want everyone to think that I'm super humble all the time, but secretly, like if I lose a follower in Twitter, like it, it burns me, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues there. And, and when I gain a follower in Twitter, it just kind of feeds my ego. So there's a lot of really, you know, th- things that I'm internally wrestling with just me as a person, like all the time. Um, but in the end, it's like, what what is this about? What am I doing here? And if you've ever read the book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, if you've never read the book, ignore the title. It's awful. If you've read the book, then you know. Um, but the, the the core of win, How to Win Friends and Influence People is it's. I didn't learn this from the book, but the book affirmed it for me. Is that um, the best way to get what you want is to give other people what they want. Um, and so hmm. for me, I started from the foundation of giving other people what they want, and saw a crazy amount of success from it, and didn't totally know why. Um, and then the book kind of explained things to me, which is basically when you're, when you're watching out for other people, when you're giving people what they want and you're, you're identifying, you're, you're seeing the value in them. You're seeing the value in the way they think you're seeing the, the, the validity of their needs and their concerns. You're caring about them. You're caring about their well-being, being, and you're trying to watch out for them and help them. Um, you're endearing yourself to them. And by doing so by earnestly like truthfully and that's the way the way the book's name fails is because it seems like it's like it's it's fake but if you read the book he really means it he really means like watch out for people and it's going to go well for you um by doing that you endear yourself to them and you you increase your reputation and you you, you more people like you more people want good for you because you earnestly want good for them and it ends up helping you out and i'm not to say that like that's the only factor in my you know, reputation. I mean, I, I happen to be a good teacher and a good speaker, and I know that those things work out well for me. Um, but for me, the foundation of everything is how can I use all of my abilities to help the people around me? And so sometimes, you know, that actually hurts my reputation because I talk a lot about race and justice and ethnicity and equality and politics because those things are vital pieces of making sure that other people are taken care of. And that loses me, reputation loses me followers. So it's not always perfect in this direction. But the reason I am where I am is because I was a total unknown who returned to programming after having worked for a nonprofit for five years. And I 
wanted to share everything I learned with the people around me. And so I wrote every single thing that I ever learned, I wrote and I tweeted and I made friends with people and I helped them and I wanted Stack Overflow and I taught people and I went on IRC and I answered questions and I just tried to help people. And that could be a growth hacking strategy. Get your Stack Overflow numbers high, whatever, whatever, whatever. But like that wasn't a growth hacking strategy. I just wanted to help people. But those people like me you know, uh, most of them and, and they follow me on Twitter. And in the end, being a good person, the people around me makes the people around me like me. So that's, I think that's one of the foundational pieces of it. Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. I, Matt, you're somebody who's pretty comfortable talking about your strengths in kind of a non D bag kind of way. And, uh, it's something that Daniel and I've talked about off air a number of times. And I'm, I, I'm curious to hear more about it because, a lot of the, in, in the kind of command you have over telling your own story and the presence you have on Twitter and the presence you have on Stack Overflow at different places, you, you're very comfortable with the fact that like you are a knowledgeable guy who is good at your job and you're good at running Titan. And you are able to say those things without coming across as a tool. And I think that's sort of uncommon and it's something that I would like to get better at is just being honestly talking about uh, my own strengths in a, in a non-obnoxious way. Mm-hmm. Um, my background with this is just that I come originally from the Midwest, from Midwestern people. I was having this really interesting conversation with this guy who started a really successful business in Indiana and then, then from a small town and then moved to New York. And we were talking about it because he said that when he first got to New York, he did the thing that I do, which is this sort of, oh, shucks, me, I'm, you know, oh, I'm just some guy mm-hmm. and I, I'm doing some, something that's a little bit interesting, but I'm just really lucky to be here that in a lot of like bigger markets like New York or Silicon Valley or other places that people see right through that and see that that's kind of a self-serving sandbagging mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it's really and it's, it's, it's kind of an ugly thing to do actually. And there's a, uh, people like me sort of think they're being polite or humble. They're not at all. I want to get better at just frankly saying I'm good at these five things and terrible at these 10 things, uh, without, without being a, a turd. You got any thoughts on that? I love it. Yeah, I do. And it's funny. Cause I said, there's one more thing I wanted to say that's foundational and that was it. So you, I'm glad you asked that question. Oh, perfect. Okay, good. The, the, the foundation is the ability to tell the truth and have integrity. Uh, and if that's what you're doing, then self-promotion is not self-promotion. It's truth-telling. Um, you know, advertising is not advertising. It's truth-telling. Because you're, you know, so it's the difference between sign up for this book and you're going to get blah, blah, blah. And, and really what you want from them is to get them on your email list. And you feel skeezy because you said one thing. And the, right, the, the right. reason you feel skeezy in self-promotion is not because it's self-serving, is it's because it's dishonestly self-serving. You're saying you're mm-hmm. doing one thing mm-hmm. and in, in reality you're doing a different thing. So a uh, f- person I know um, used to really, really, really hyper-focused on Twitter followership would do promotions. Um, if, you know, of the next 20 people who follow me, um, I'll pick one of you and send you this little stuffed animal or whatever. And it was just kind of, and obviously the guy wanted to get to 6,000 followers and it was, and it was, it was, it was duplicitous or it was, it was, it was not truthful, you know, but I have actually done that before in a, in a way that felt truthful to me. And I said, you know what, y'all, this totally makes no sense. It's totally silly, but somehow this number just kind of means something to me. If you like what I'm saying, would you consider telling one of your friends about it? Um, if not, no worries. 
You know, it's something like that. And it's like, like I'm being honest. It's still self-promotional, but it's totally honest. And there's some people who will hear that and be turned off by it, but I don't care, you know, like, because I'm being honest. So for me, I don't mind being self-promotional as long as I'm honest. However, there's, I think there's two things that have led me to be honest in the way they am honest. So I'll share them. Um, I'm Midwestern. I'm from Michigan. I know Midwest nice. That's where I'm come from. Um, but when I went to college, I joined a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is where I work for five years. Um, I normally don't talk about this super publicly because most of my audiences don't have any, you know, interest in this sort of stuff. But for some reason, I feel motivated to tell you all about this. So sorry, everyone. Um, but this group, one of their foundational goals is to counterculturally reflect the teachings of Jesus in ways that um, regardless of kind of the prevailing cultural norms. And so they integrated in the 70s in a really, really kind of powerful way. And so I came from, you know, just cornbread, you know, white people um, to this very, very, very intentionally, thoughtfully diverse group. And I was approached with, for example, um, the cultural dynamics of communication and honesty and truth-telling in, in all these different ways. And so one of the things I discovered was that white people, especially Midwestern white people, are more on the indirect and more on the, you know, kind of the passive and more on the, you know, aw shucks kind of vibe versus uh, primarily black and Latino people in the U.S. And East Asian cultures and Southeast Asian cultures are are even more in the, the, um, the indirect direction. And so all of a sudden these things that were previously like, yeah, this is the way everyone is, is like, oh no, this is the way my specific culture is. And the moment you something like that is exposed to you, you now have to evaluate it. If it's not just something everyone does, it's something just your people do, then there must be some way for you to approach whether it's something you want to continue doing. So that was, I think, a one important piece. Um, and also my wife is African-American and she's like um, very direct um, and I've learned a lot of value of directness and truth-telling for her, um, from her. But I think another piece, a big piece of it is just that like... Um, uh, there's a lot of very new agey postmodern ways that I describe my faith. And one of them, truth telling just comes up a lot. It's a really, really important thing for me because I think that one of the most powerful things that we can do in interacting with, um, everything, whether it's injustice or family or whatever is telling the like capital T truth about a situation. And I don't mean the religious, you know, you know, talk about Jesus all the time kind of thing. Truth. What I mean, what I mean from my perspective is I mean, telling the truth and seeing through to the thing as it is and speaking that regardless of the the repercussions. And so for me, that's that's what standing up for people looks like is, is standing up for people's dignity and telling the truth about their inherent worth and dignity regardless of how other people see them. Um, but it also means that I need to be able to tell that same truth about myself. And so if I'm good at teaching, I'm I'm knowingly being full of when I say, oh, you know, I'm... However, um, almost nobody I know from back home Almost nobody I know from my town knows what I do. None of them know my Twitter follower account. None of them know the success of my business because there's no reason for me to tell them that. So I think that there is some validity to the um, the kind of aw shucks type thing. But it's again, it's it's all about are you being are you having integrity together with like the truth and, and the the purpose of your conversation, your relationship with the person. So for me, I'm not going to be like, hey everybody, did you know that I run a multi million dollar consultancy? Blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> But if somebody asks me what I do, so if somebody asks me what I do, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm a programmer, right? That's, uh, that's, do I need to say that I run a programming shop and I have X number of employees? No, because that wasn't relevant. So the only reason I would say that is because I want people to know that about me. And that, that's when it goes from truth telling to, you know, to self-promotion. But if somebody asks me, who do I work for? What's the name of the company? What's your role? Or, or who's your boss or whatever? When, when it's the natural time to answer the question truthfully, I don't, I don't. 
I know that I'm answering it truthfully because it's what was asked and so I don't have any guilt. So it's the, it's the only telling the necessarily truthful thing and then feeling comfortable telling the truth when it's the tr- necessarily truthful thing, if that makes sense. And so I just, all this, this guilt of like worrying about what I'm saying when and what I'm not saying and when am I being so promotional goes away as long as I focus on like truth and integrity, basically. Yeah, I'm, I think a lot about, uh, you know, whether I'm acting out of fear or whether I'm acting out of sort of love, service, faith. You can kind of merge Mm -hmm. all those things into one thing, right? But, like, there's lots of situations where I've noticed that the grossest things that I want, my grossest instincts um, are based in fear, right? They're all based in Mm -hmm. either, like, fear that people are not going to like me, right? Or fear Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to get something that I want, fear that I'm going to lose something that I have, or ultimately, like, fear of being alone and unfulfilled, right those <laughs> yeah, are yeah. those are human fears right that's what they are and so when i am not checking in with my fears right i'm not checking in with like what is driving me around what's making my decisions for me then mm-hmm. i can end up doing some really nasty things well the good thing is like especially I, w- I wanted to say our generation but you guys are always talking about the people in their 20s and i'm definitively not i'm 32 but I, I'm technically a millennial. You're a stone so we're grow from Actually, age. sorry, I didn't realize that we're going to have to cancel the episode. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I can't believe I got on the podcast when I'm no, not No, you're a millennial. 20. It's about millennials. Well, you're a millennial until you're like I'm 36 millennial. or something. Yeah, Yeah, I was born in 84, and millennials usually bound around 1980. So I'm an old millennial. Um, but our generation is really, 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 really good at snipping, sniffing out manipulative BS. Mm-hmm. Like we're, very, we're exceedingly good at it. So I think that like the BS detector is very good. Uh, and you turn your own BS detector on yourself and turn your friend's BS detectors on you. And I feel like for me, like I've always said, like I care a lot more about ethics and morality than I care about legality when people are talking about whether it's, you know, MP3 downloads or whatever else it ends up being. The same thing's true. I care much more about the BS detector than I care about the the hard and fast you know, rules of how to do things or not do things. I love that Daniel went down the road of fears because so much of my life has been dictated by fear. You know, like I'm afraid that everyone else is going to see that I have no idea what I'm doing in programming. Well, one way to address that fear is by telling everybody, hey, I just learned this thing, even though I'm super embarrassed about the fact that people are going to say, wait a minute, you wrote a book, a 480 page book about Laravel and you just learned that? Like every time people are like, oh, by the time you've gotten to that point, you must not be afraid of tweeting this stuff because I'm like encouraging my employees to like tweet when they learn stuff. And they're like, well, you you must not be scared anymore. I'm like, no, I'm more scared because I've developed the reputation that I know what I'm doing and y'all are going to realize that I'm just a fumbling idiot. Um, but even like with personal relationships, like the, the number one reason I make bad decisions in my marriage is because I'm afraid of how my wife is going to respond. And, mm-hmm. and I'm doing her a disservice because I am in a marriage with this person I built up in my brain of all the fears I have of who she is, you know, versus the actual real person. And so, like, when I interact with her as a person and I have integrity and honesty about who I am, even if it does go not the way I wanted, like, I just had a real relationship moment with a real person versus, you know, cutting off a relationship and then imagining, oh, I did that because of, you know, this this thing with this non-existent person because I didn't give her the chance to actually be who she is and respond how she will. So I, I totally am with you on the fear thing. Have I ever what? seen my nose um only straight on okay there you i've go. never Just seen as you long in as I don't, profile like, move my head in any direction then you don't notice it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm all jammed up right now because i was just uh talking about this on facebook 
because they make uh, medicine for that. Yeah, a, I know. <laughs> I know. We, we can talk about that off air. We usually save our our number two segment for, for <laughs> fiber one, baby. <laughs> so I'm going to be egotistical about how humble I'm going to be about how egotistical I'm going to be about how humble I'm going to right. be about my Twitter DMs. And it is that Jeff Goldblum. Like I think old Jeff Goldblum didn't wear them, but like new yeah. Jeff Goldblum, the Apartments.com Jeff Goldblum. I um when someone writes TBH in my head, I always just think of. And I know that's not right because that's like T H B H T H B H T H B H, but that's all I got. Also, it is kind of what, what's the funny to imagine though that that's what they are saying. Like, yeah, I don't really have that much money. <laughs> you just made me laugh so hard I spit on my microphone. Um, there was a is an abbreviation that some people were using for some national soccer playing thing, and it had like a T and an M and an N and a T in there somewhere. And every time they said it, all I could think of was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, of course. So <laughs> that's funny. I There's like TGTN like as a as a it's abbreviation for Titan. Titan. I like that. You know what I don't like is the fact that we named it Titan like the verb instead of Titan like the noun. And now everybody, including Siri, assumes we're always saying T I T A N because you're using it yeah. in a place in a sentence where you'd normally have you know a noun. And we just anytime right. someone yeah anytime someone asks me what I do, I'm like I work for a company called Titan. You know, like tighten your belt. Tighten that's my that's my go to. So we originally thought of it very much. I mean, you could see from the 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 fact that our primary logo is a Phillips head screw hole. What is that even? What's the part mm-hmm. called where you put the screwdriver? The head. The head of a screw. Is it? Huh? Well, but the head the head is the the whole part, including the hole, right? Is there a name just for the depression where the screwdriver goes? Well, anyway, that's our logo. The welcoming committee. (laughs) You know, I got to say, though, you know, I don't like to tell anyone how to do their jobs, and I'm no branding expert. But uh, But. that that is, it's a pretty, the the little uh, plus sign could be interpreted a lot of different ways. I, I actually didn't didn't even think of it as a uh, screw head until until this moment. Yeah, and, and we're, we're perfectly okay with that. A lot of it, we're very comfortable being abstract because it's this very postmodern, like, abstract and concrete. Like, we wanted it to be very Chicago and very concrete and very physical and very tooly. But the, when they gave us a lot of designs that were, like, completely on the nose, it felt too... Not pretentious. Um, too. <laughs> they give you a hammer and thistle. Yeah, it's just too contrived. It was like too like, hey, look, we like tools, and we, you know, we're the people making web stuff, and so we like wanted to go away from that a little bit, but still keep the references. So we instead, went for semi-abstract designs inspired by the t- tool stuff. So you having said that is is perfectly fine. It, but the the thing that really does cause me pause on a regular basis is that I literally have to spell out the name of the domain every single time I give it to anyone. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. But just say Titan, like tighten your belt. Yeah, that's, so that's what got me in this whole rant in the first place. We we often say Titan, like you tighten a screw or something like that. Um, and we the original idea was actually somebody talking about tightening focus, and we were starting to use like camera analogies, and that that fell apart quickly. So, yeah, I tried to. I think right when Daniel told me he was getting the job, I tried to look you guys up, <laughs> and uh, I, sp- I spent like fifteen minutes trying to find T I T A N, and it was eventually like, I don't think this is a real company. So what I'm going to do right now is something that I've been meaning to do for a really long time, which is to go look up whether T I T A N dot C O exists, and if it does, and it's free, buy I, it. I'm going to buy it right now. Let's see if it's free. I'm pretty sure I'd own it already if it were free, but you never know. Yep, it's already registered. 
because that also could be a good name. Yeah, you know, it's a little, br- it's a little bit broy. So actually, but, yeah, uh, the only reason we didn't is because I think there's another firm called Giant or something, and it's kind of funny because they only had a couple people, and so we almost went there, but we didn't want to be too similar to their way of doing it. So we almost kind of like took yeah. the the sound, ran with with T I T A N, and then it was just like you said, it's kind of like, yeah, we're the titans of the yeah. already broy industry. One time, I was standing uh, in line for a drink at a wedding reception. And uh, there was a real bro next to me. And he said, uh, so who are you? And I said, oh, I'm a cousin of the groom. And uh, and I'm a college student. Who are you? <laughs> and he said, and he kind of uh, kind of puffered up a little bit, poked his chest out. And he, and he said to me with, with no sense of irony, no sense of sarcasm whatsoever, he said, I'm a titan of industry. <laughs> Ooh. No, That's... no, that that cannot be a real story. <laughs> it is 100% real. And I have since told that story many times, and nobody believes no. that it actually happened. Yeah. But it is a oh, real man. thing that happened to me I mean, in real time. In not only did people not say that back when there was a more common phrase about themselves, but it's not even a common phrase now. So, like, who, who yeah, are like, I don't even think even? John D. Rockefeller would have said that right. about no, himself. Right, no, of course not. <laughs> Oh man, I'm really considering developing like an alternate wedding persona. <laughs> <laughs>